hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. Welcome to the Disaster Discussions podcast, where we explore the intersection of weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody from IBHS, and we continue. It's part two of our series from the Severe Local Storms Conference, hopefully You've had an opportunity to take in our first session, the interview with IBHS's Christina Gropp and Dr. Mackenzie Krochak from the University of Oklahoma Institute for Policy Research and Analysis. Great conversation there. Our conversation continues, our series continues here from the SLS conference with Dr. Matthew Cumgen from Penn State University. So here's the issue. When it comes to the economic impact of severe storms, Hail might seem like the little brother to tornadoes and damaging winds, but did you know it's the greatest loss driver in total cost to insurers? The more we learn about the characteristics of hail, the more we can prevent losses. IBHS's Dr. Ian Jamanko was joined by Dr. Matthew Cumgen, who uses weather radar to detect hail and severe storms. They'll discuss how this is helping to work towards determining the sizes of hail that may be present and how that relates to damage potential. Got a great episode, a great interview with Dr. Ian Jamanko and Dr. Matthew Cumgen. Here it is right now. Welcome back to our Severe Local Storms Conference of the American Meteorological Society series. Uh, we're going to hop back to the topic of hail today, following up on our podcast that we had with Julian Brimelow in the Northern Hail Project, joined by a one special guest and a wonderful friend of mine who we've been working together for almost seven years now. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Matt Cumgen, uh, Associate Professor of Meteorology at Penn State University, and we're going to talk a little bit about the future of hail and how we detect it and how we forecast it. So Matt, you know, first off, I'm going to paint the picture of where we are in terms of how we detect hail, but also how we forecast it. Yeah, great question. So, and thank you very much for, for having me, for chatting about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, as yes. you know. Yes, uh, it is. For all of our work together. Um, so yeah, starting from the forecasting perspective, basically the forecasters are going to look for the ingredients that come together in the environments uh, that support the parent hail storms themselves. And so we know the basics about uh, which types of storms uh, produce the, the, are the most prolific producers of damaging hail. Uh, but when it comes down to the details, that's where we kind of get a little bit, uh, have a little bit of uncertainty and that's where we've been focusing our research efforts. We'll start into the radar detection side. So a lot of people know you see a severe warning and it says, you know, hail up to half dollar size or something like that. 
Tell us, you know, how that how how a forecaster at the National Weather Service would take that information from radar and actually try, mm -hmm. I'll say try for now, <laughs> try to assess the severity of hail within a given thunderstorm. Sure. So just briefly, radars operate by sending out radio waves and it bounces off of the storm, all the particles in the storm. And so they try to use that information in some way to determine what's out there, how severe it is. Um, with the new dual polarization radar upgrade, we do have some information about the shapes and, and sort of physical composition of those particles. And that can give the forecaster some idea if it's small melting hail, which kind of look like big raindrops to the radar, uh, or if the larger hail, it tends to tumble more. Uh, but then once it gets kind of above that sort of severe one, one and a half inch threshold, it uh, becomes much more difficult to determine the hail size. And so oftentimes they're, uh, they're basing on uh, spotter reports or citizen scientist reports that are coming in about what sizes they get and they can adjust their warnings accordingly. There are algorithms that are out there, uh, but again, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to improve them. All right, so let's stay with that. Um, the two primary uh, things we hear a lot about, both from the operational side and then the industry application or the use of the, the MRMS mesh tool, so that's one, and then using the hydrometeor classification algorithm that's based on the dual pole products. Uh, so let's start with the MRMS, that the maximum estimated hail size product. And then we'll talk about you know, what is different from the dual pole side. Then what are their limitations? So let's go with MRMS mesh first. Sure. So mesh is an algorithm. It's based on the total storms sort of presentation on radar. So it's not just looking at that one low level, or for example, it's, it's looking at the entire storm. And it's based on a quantity that's known as radar reflectivity, basically how much of that signal is coming back to the, uh, to the radar when we send out those waves. And so what it does basically is it integrates or sort of adds up the contributions from the radar scans starting up in the hail growth region, which is at temperatures below zero degrees Celsius, so high up in the cloud, all the way up through the top of the storm. Uh, and then empirically, uh, this is a study from almost uh, 20 years ago now, or actually more than 20 years ago, uh, that basically tried to, to empirically fit the, the, those values that they got from that algorithm to the reported hail sizes at the surface. So take that, what do we know, what does it do well and what does it not do well? Sure, it's a great proxy for the storm intensity. So when you have a stronger storm, a taller storm, and one that's producing more precipitation particles, especially higher up in the cloud, that's um, really gonna light up. So it's a great way for forecasters to see in real time, hey, there's something to pay attention about in the storm. I think it's also very good at hail detection. Um, when the mesh value gets above some certain threshold and people have been studying those exact thresholds, it's a very good indicator that yes, there's probably hail in the storm. Um, what perhaps it's not so good at is the actual hail size itself, even though that's in the name. Um, the values that are spit out from this algorithm are in terms of hail sizes, either in inches or in millimeters, um, but those do not actually correlate very well to the reported hail sizes at the surface. Yeah, that's some, some work we've done in IBHS as well. Uh, Kyle Ortega at the National Severe Storms Laboratory, University of Oklahoma, even um, some other folks there at OU have looked at this and found some of these kind of errors in trying to actually get to a maximum hail size, which we hear about a lot. And in the building science world, we want to take that to a damaged state. But there's actually more to hail, right? That, you know, lots can fall, lots of given sizes, those kinds of things. How does radar handle the concentration element plus a size distribution that yeah. it's sampling? And that's the, the, therein lies the problem with radar-based hail sizing efforts. Um, we're limited by the physics of the electromagnetic radiation scattering off of those particles. And so effectively, the amount of radiation, or the amount of signal that comes back to the radar is proportional to both the number concentrations, so how many particles there are per unit volume of the cloud, uh, but then also very strongly with size. Um, the problem, though, is that dependence 
on size changes as you get to bigger and bigger hailstones. It actually weakens. And so you may end up in a situation that you get the exact same amount of energy back uh, from the cloud if you have a few big ones versus a lot of small ones. Um, with the dual polarization radar upgrade, there are some ways that we can now look at the concentration of certain parts of that size spectrum, including the uh, high concentrations of small hail, which yep. is something that IBHS has been interested in recently as well. Yeah, so let's let's go into the dual pole side. So there is an operational algorithm, hydrometeor classification. It does have a hail sizing criteria. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that, because the, both of these, the MRMS mesh and the dual pole based products, do appear into one not only operational work but also the application. Or you know, we talk about hail swaths and looking at you know damage underneath that. So tell us a little bit about how those size buckets are, are really kind of broken out. Sure. So the uh, hydrometer classification algorithm takes each radar pixel, uses all the information available from the dual pole radar, and determines what it thinks is the most likely type of particle that's there, whether it's raindrops or snowflakes or hailstones. And if it is uh, detected as hail, then it classifies into one of these three size buckets, as you said, um, small or sub-severe hail, um, severe, and then greater than two inches, which we would call significantly severe. So one inch is the severe threshold. So below one, one to two, and greater than two. And really, the, when we put that together, it was based on the physics of hailstone melting, which seems a little bit kind of strange, but there's a, a few wind tunnel studies from back in the 80s uh, that looked at the melting properties of ice particles in the wind tunnel. Um, and it was noted that the smaller hailstones tend to accumulate much more liquid water as they melt, and they kind of hold that liquid water and it almost looks like a, a hula hoop, like a little torus around it. So they look like big raindrops. Um, as they get bigger, it sheds that, that water, that liquid is, is shed off as raindrops, and, and the resulting particle ends up being a little bit sort of drier and, and looks more like a, a hailstone. And so using the information about where the radar beam is at a given scan, uh, the temperature from the environment, and then those different properties of the small melting hail versus the larger melting hail is how it's sort of broken down. So let's go now to the future. And I'm gonna start with work we've done, well, together really at IBHS is, is understanding hail shapes. No way. So we've done all sorts of things. We've, we've measured hail in multiple dimensions. We've also 3D scanned them. And to me, it's one of the, the coolest pieces of the hail field program that we've done. But tell kind of our listeners, how does that information about simply diagnosing a hailstone shape, how does that translate into what is the future of radar hail detection? Yeah, this is really something that opened my eyes, obviously, when we started getting these 3D scans. And um, for those who haven't seen the true natural diversity of, of hailstone shapes, it's quite amazing when you start seeing these lumpy, lobey things out there in the field. Um, but yeah, all of those aforementioned algorithms that we just mentioned have either explicitly assumed that the hailstones are spheres or spheroids, which is a, kind of like a squished sphere. So very smooth, very symmetric. Um, and that's very rare when we go out and look in the, in the field. Um, so using the 3D scans, we're able to actually now use some um, very detailed calculations to see what a radar would see in each case of having this lumpy or lobey hailstone. We can rotate it around. Um, we can sort of look at it with different radar wavelengths and really try to better characterize the true range of what might be um, what we might be seeing out in the field from, from the radar. Yeah, so I think, you know, for us, it was one using that to understand hail aerodynamics at IBHS, but Matt's taking this kind of work and really kind of turn it on its head from the radar application side, which um, it's been a wonderful partnership for us, but it shows you the, the legs that this kind of foundational work can actually have, spanning all the facets of hail. Um, so looking ahead, as we've talked about what's there now, I'm gonna ask probably the, well, I'd say million dollar question, but we know hail's more costly than that. So let's call it the $20, $20 billion, billion question. <laughs> 
Are we ever gonna be able to pin down maximum hail size at the ground using whatever kind of remote sensing tool there, there might be? Maximum size, probably not, unfortunately. Um, however, I do think that uh, in some respects, the maximum size is maybe not the target that we're looking at. Um, it's safe to say that the maximum size from any given storm is probably not truly measured because you'd have to be in the right spot at the right time. And that's even with the detailed field campaign, yeah. that's very unlikely. Uh, what I think we might have some progress in in the near future is looking at sort of the most common hail size or potentially the, the sort of bulk of the hail that may be damaging. And so we may be able to get some indication and say, okay, there's a whole bunch of hail of this particular size there. And that information could be useful from a damage perspective. Yeah, I, I would make the case that, that perhaps from a correlation to actual damage states, that's going to give us a better approximation of what to expect mm -hmm. at the ground. And so if you think about all sorts of industry applications, that can guide uh, improved processing of claims, resource allocation there from the insurance industry. We can change um, really refined risk modeling applications with the damage functions that are there. Uh, so there's a lot that, that, that can be done. And I think, I, I feel like this week, um, we've seen the, the progress really start to take shape um, through the sessions we've had on hail in the recent North American Hail Workshop. Uh, so that's kind of been my take on, on what we've been doing. Uh, turning to the forecast sign. Now this is an element uh, outside of assessing damage and what happens after a hailstorm. Um, we do know there's there's elements of preventative things we can do to prepare for hailstorms, perhaps moving vehicles undercover, take some mitigation actions. Um, but we've seen a pretty bad year in terms of global injuries from hail. So we have those warnings, our severe weather warnings that come with this. Where are we in forecasting hail uh, from an impact to, to society perspective? Where are we and, and what can we do? That is a great question. I'm not sure if I'm most qualified to, to answer the uh, certain aspects of that. I think we're at the point where we can do pretty good sort of assessment of the risk of a, a given sort of day, whether or not we would expect to have severe hail. Um, I think we're making progress on determining the sort of nature of that threat as to whether it would be sort of marginally damaging hail to significantly damaging hail. Um, and then the societal aspect is definitely something that I think there needs to be a lot more work because we, um, you know, right now, the, the warnings just kind of come out. They might may or may not have a size estimate in there, um, but we can probably do a better job of awareness about when the conditions are right so people have a lot more time to sort of think about and prepare what they might end up doing. Yeah, and we have some uh, an episode of this show, our disaster discussions, that will cover some of the social science human behavior aspects mm -hmm. of how humans treat those weather warnings mm -hmm. and what actions they may or may not take. Um, you do uh, storm scale modeling, trying to actually simulate these hail producing thunderstorms. So tell us a little bit about that. And then we're going to kind of take another dive into how that could be used to understand what could go on at the ground. Absolutely. So this has been a, a fun project over the last several years. Um, and so essentially, you know, the idea of trying to understand the environments of hailstorms and what different factors contribute to the different hail threats uh, is really difficult for the reasons we talked about from just the lack of the reports and the lack of the quality of the reports at the surface. Uh, and so instead, we have another option, which is we can create a hailstorm in a computer model. And so that's what we did. Uh, and it's really nice because you can turn the knobs and say, crank up certain elements of the environment that might be more or less favorable for hail production, and then see what happens. And so we spent some time putting together a very detailed, what we call a hail trajectory model, um, where we can basically seed the storm and each of these little particles can then go through and be kind of abducted, as we say, or blown around by the winds and grow into hailstones. And we track them all explicitly. Um, we can do millions of these uh, you know, particles for every storm that we do. 
And we've really been starting to map out the parameter space of trying to understand how things like the changes of wind speed and direction with height might affect the hail production in a storm, or the amount of fuel or what we call instability can affect the, the way that hail is produced in storms. Yeah, I think this has given us some great insights as to what's really going on within a thunderstorm. We, we can't just, you know, we, we don't have a storm penetrating aircraft. We can't go take a look at some of these things. Um, and just like we do at the IBHS research facility, we get to turn the knobs in our big full-scale test chamber. This is exactly the same thing. Um, you can actually hold a whole bunch of variables constant and turn one knob and see what's going on. And, and we do the exact same thing. Um, thinking about that element, um, are we starting to kind of hone in or some of the things you see in the modeling element starting to show up in the field? Absolutely, and this is something that got me very excited this week at the conference. Um, we're starting to see these, these areas of uh, different features of the environment that maybe we hadn't considered before as a community. And now when we're starting to look in those directions, um, you know, there's been a number of studies that have started to support what we see in the simulations. Um, so it seems at least there's some broad consistency there. So we're starting to know where to look and what features may be important. And so we've got lots of great colleagues um, around here that they're working on these exact problems. Yeah, so let's go to that one. Um, it's a question we asked Julian. We, we have definitely seen, whether you call it a resurgence or a renaissance in, in hail research really over the last probably say 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. In, in your mind, what's actually driven that? Ah, that's a great question. Um, a lot of it was, at least from my own personal trajectory, has been sort of serendipitous. Um, you know, I, I, you, you've known me to, you know, for a while, so you can kind of see all the things that I do. I kind of get interested in various topics, but hail has always <laughs> Snow been... is one of them, too, exactly. for, for our <laughs> listeners. Yes, Matt, Matt does like his snow. Yes, so I, anything that falls from the sky, I get excited about. <laughs> uh, so hail's always kind of been something that, that has fascinated me ever since I was a kid. Uh, but I think this, we're at this sort of convergence between when we're starting to see a big socioeconomic pressure um, we're seeing just in huge increases, as we've already discussed, yeah. and as Julian discussed, huge increases in, in that side. Uh, but then we're also pairing that with sort of the emergence of new technology. So we have the dual polarization radars that have come online that are giving us a huge new wealth of information to study hailstorms. Uh, the computer technology is, is advancing, so we can do these types of really high-resolution, detailed simulations. The 3D laser scanning that you yeah. introduced has opened a number of doors for a variety of, of topics as well. So we're really just at this point where these new tools and these new data sets and these new capabilities are really sort of driving a lot of excitement in the science community. Yeah, so it's, it's been really a fun ride just for myself. And I will say, I've spent the better part of the last seven years trying to not look like an idiot in front of this guy. Um, <laughs> but if, it's, if my contribution is the 3D scanning, I, I think I could hang my hat and be happy. Um, but it's been a really neat um, 10 years to see the, the research really ramp up. And we had some great student presentations this oh, yeah. week. So I think we're in good hands with our next generation that, that's coming along Absolutely. to hopefully carry on the torch. Um, as we kind of start to kind of wind down and wrap it up, we know, you know, hail's become a, a, almost a $20 billion problem. Um, what do you think, how, how should we look at allocating resources to this? We talk a lot about life safety. Um, hail's not necessarily considered one of the big life mm -hmm. safety elements. But when we throw in that property part, life and property, we can't ignore the dollars that are being spent every single year. A very good example from, from uh, Varus was last year in a, a low hail year, we still had 16 plus billion mm -hmm. in damage. So how do you view that? You, you have made some very wonderful comments 
in repeated sessions at this conference talking about trying to make sure we don't ignore the other perils that come with severe thunderstorms. We hone in on tornadoes, but what do we got to do? Let's think broadly now outside of just tornadoes, but include hail, flood, all that. What do, what do we have to do? Uh, from the science perspective, I think you have to get people excited about it. I know there's a lot of people here focused on tornadoes. I've probably made a a few not so good friends here, if I keep saying that at the, at the different uh, <laughs> sessions that we've had. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that highlighting the fact, and, and a lot of the people at the study hail are making this point repeatedly at the beginning of each of our talks, just to raise awareness. I think that's one thing is that a lot of folks who aren't necessarily uh, plugged into the insurance sector or, in, or into sort of the you know, building codes and things like that don't really yeah. realize what's, what's at stake. Um, and, you know, honestly, it comes down to the, the sort of decisions that are made at the, at the national right. level in terms of funding agencies and in terms of operational meteorological agencies. What are they interested in? What do they see as being the, the drivers of, of their biggest problems that they have to deal with? Yeah, we'll keep going on that one. Um, one of the big pushes now is to is is taking research, turning it into operate R2O is the, the fancy mm -hmm. name. But also in our private sector, private sector world, it's research to an application. So how do you see that evolving? You know, what's the process and how does the academic side view the application element? Um, and how do, you, how do you actually approach that from foundational research, thinking out toward what might be a future application? That's a great question. Um, so I always sort of have that in the back of my mind. Obviously, I do some stuff that's a little more esoteric. You see my thermal energy transfer coefficient <laughs> paper, for, for example. But ultimately, right, these ideas are to try to improve something in the long run, whether it's improved forecasts of hail, improved detection and, and being able to warn people about it, uh, better characterization of the hailstones themselves, right, can feed directly back into just some of the lab testing the IBHS does. So I always try to kind of keep that in the back of my mind about just whatever questions we're asking. It's always trying to improve something down the road. Yeah, I think that's one of the critical elements now is taking foundational research, understanding where it may be used, and really you think about wanting to, to put things on a level playing field out there, but also be able to foster somebody else who may could take that application and run with it and turn it into something useful. Exactly. That's, that's really one of the dreams of, of people that do science is we hope that someone can find what we do useful. Um, you know, if we're doing something that no one cares about and isn't useful, then why are we, why are we doing that? So um, it's always exciting when, when people can take that and run with it and do great things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll keep going more kind of on a, on a weather thing. I'm actually turn back the clock. Um, so how did, I'm going to ask this guy, how did you get started in weather? What was your, oh, wow. what, was, what was the impetus for you to get into the weather world? Hurricane Andrew, 1992. Wow, we share that in very much in common. <laughs> um, you grew up in Maryland, is that yeah. right? Maryland and Virginia Beach. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so why Andrew? It was about the it was the time when I was of the age when I started like sort of paying attention. So even before then, I wanted to be an astronomer. So I'd always been interested in the sky. Um, some of my most detailed memories from when I was like four or five and six are from bad thunderstorms that we had. Um, my family moved down to the Virginia Beach area in '92, and that was uh, you know, the summer that Hurricane Andrew hit Miami. So I was just kind of glued to the TV. The weather channel watching the coverage. It sounds eerily familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so it just, it sort of switched at that point, just kind of seeing what, what was, what nature was capable of and, and sort of how it affected people. And um, I, I honestly didn't get into hurricanes for, you know, yeah. for whatever reason, but that's just sort of sparked an interest in, in our atmosphere and what can happen. Yeah. So I, I had a sort of similar experience, but this one was an interesting one. Um, my dad showed me the 1985 Nova tornado mm. episode. 
and it had Howie Bluestein and Lou Wicker was a graduate student. These are all for, for us weather nerds. We we know these people and um, who are here this week. Oh yes, who have been here this week and we've gotten to work with in the field. Um, and that kind of triggered my interest in weather. But like you, Hurricane Andrew, its final landfall was in South Louisiana, and so that really set myself on that path. And I did go into the hurricane world academically. Um, and now Matt and I, our, our paths have crossed, and hail is the uh, the common thread for that. Um, I do know the, the 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 moment you kind of got involved with IBHS was with uh, Tanya, my wife, Tanya Brown Jamanko, when she was at, at IBHS. I think she just grabbed you at a conference, or you guys just happened to, to cross paths, and and seven years later, here we are. Um, so, how about what do we do in the next seven years? Wow. Yeah. Um, well, clearly, we we definitely need to continue getting the high quality data that IBHS has already. Uh, been collecting over the past seven plus years actually now at this point um you know the the number of data sets the number of people who have cited the ibhs data collections and data sets at this conference so far is pretty astounding um so you know continuing to get these types of data that we can't get otherwise can really help push the science forward as we've as we've already seen um, i think there's some very exciting work that our colleagues are doing some of which we saw yesterday um, for some new technology that's coming down the pipeline to even sort of push the envelope with what we can observe um, and, and yeah, just to kind of keep asking questions, right? Just kind of keep pushing along and, and trying to see what's going on. The session that we were just in had nothing to do with hail, but you know, the, one of the last speakers said a lot of stuff. I was like, my mind started spinning. And so, yeah, just, just this type of interaction and, and just continuing to kind of push the envelope in our understanding of technology. Yeah, I had that moment earlier today with a, a new term I learned about diagnosing curvature in a ah. path. And so immediately I start jotting down how it might be a more efficient way to even diagnose hailstone shapes from just 2D imagery. Mm. Uh, can you trace paths around a stone and look at uh, the amount of curvature? So something completely unrelated to hail wasn't about hail, but of course I start taking absurd notes and uh, I'll have to decipher that later. Um, but I think the common theme though, as we look ahead is, is one, we can lead with observations, but we got to have both. We got to have the modeling element and we got to have the observations in the field to make sure what we're seeing in the model is showing up in the real world. And if there's things that look weird mm -hmm. out in the, the, the real world that we can actually go back and simulate and figure out what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that to me has always been kind of a unique element of, of science that I've always gravitated to, that everything works hand in hand. And at IBHS, in our you know, experimental test world, it's the same thing. You take observations from the field, a building performance. Can you simulate it in the lab? Can you understand what's happening and be able to diagnose uh, solutions? Mm -hmm. and solutions, identify problems, come up with solutions. So that's a very similar theme, I think, throughout the natural hazard sciences. Um, so as we kind of take our way into the, the end land of hail, um, tell us a little bit about some of the other areas of research that you do. I want folks to understand that you are a kind of a well-rounded scientist. Talk about a little bit of the, the winter weather uh, pieces and parts that you do and um, how that may have an impact on society. Sure, so um, as you said, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to weather. So uh, anything, anything that falls from the sky, I get excited about. A lot of my research is focused on, on radar as sort of the centerpiece, radar and precipitation physics, as I like to call it. Um, so one of the things that we've been getting into recently, um, my wife, Kelly Lombardo, is also a professor at Penn State. Uh, we've been looking into snow squalls. That's another element, too. I get to work with my wife for quite a while. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, snow squalls, for, in terms of a hazard uh, for society, I mean, every year we, we end up having crashes on I-80, uh, big pileups because of these things. 
So we're trying to work to understand the, the formative mechanisms that drive them as well as the environmental factors that support them so we can improve the forecast and warnings of those as well. Yeah, I think winter weather actually, we've kind of pivoted topics now a little bit. Winter weather is an area that doesn't necessarily get as much societal impact attention, um, but we've seen kind of the, the detrimental effects. You hit the auto side, the, the, the road weather. Um, we saw s significant impacts from Arctic air outbreaks in the mm -hmm. southeast, which simply are, are the way we build buildings are not meant to have to withstand um, extreme cold, especially when the infrastructure fails. So uh, there's an element there that, that, that we talk about a bit at IBHS, but I think warrants some, some new work to understand uh, how do we start kind of whittling away there? It, it's something, you know, the winter weather element that people may not think about. I mean, we used to talk about hail as the, the Rodney Dangerfield of perils, like it doesn't get any respect. I think that's completely changed now, um, mostly because of that big dollar number. But I think you hit a, a touch on the winter weather element that that people outside of those areas that, that are prone to this may not think about. So uh, it's been a wonderful conversation with Dr. Matt Cumgen from Penn State University here on our AMS Severe Local Storms Conference series. I want to thank Matt for, for joining us here today. Uh, in our hail series, you've heard from Julian Bremelow, executive director of the Northern Hail Project. We followed that up with a little bit of futuristic look at what we can be doing in hail research. Uh, so thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Disaster Discussions. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app, or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at facebook.com slash disaster safety, and on Instagram at ibhs underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening in our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit ibhs.org.